Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Beacon of Ike podcast tonight. Tonight, we are here with an incredible panel of men, and I am so excited to ask them a lot of questions, and hopefully their insight will give some great information for all of you out there. Tonight, we are together with the Unite in Light Domestic Violence Conference. And as we unite together in light, we're able then to help spread it and share so many more things with so many great, incredible people. And just to kind of do some housekeeping, here are the dates of what's coming up in our future broadcasts. And so tonight it is the 18th. We are halfway through the month, if you can believe it. We have already gone through four incredible speakers. And so for tonight, with the panel here, this is gonna be a great opportunity for all of us to see even more and ask more questions. So we've got, as you can see, running down on the ticker below, we have Scott Vinci, we have Chris Schmiel, we have Dwayne Pinnett, as soon as he pops in. And we're excited to have all of these people come. If you have questions about how to support somebody who is in domestic violence, the Supporters Toolkit is part of this incredible opportunity for you all. And I hope that this will be an opportunity for you to make the difference in somebody else's life. And our focus tonight is that men make the difference. And truly, domestic violence, like I posted earlier, is not a women's issue. This is truly a society issue, a family issue. And we will get into the discussion of this as we build things along. So please join us. Welcome, share, let us know where you are from. And again, our focus will be that as our incredible authors are here tonight, they all have books and we wanted to share this out. Oh, Once Broken by Chris Schmiel. Here he is. He's got it hanging out right there. We also have The Ripple Effect by Dwayne Hinnett, as well as If I Had Known by Scott Vinci. And the whole concept, there we go. They have written many books and Scott has many books behind him and so does Chris. And so we're excited to have these authors be a part of this. And it looks like Dwayne just popped in, so I'm gonna add him. There he is. Hello, Dwayne. We're just kind of covering out some quick information here. So we are grateful that you guys are here. And at any time, if you want to know what the hotline is, if you feel that you have been in a challenging situation and you need to talk to somebody immediately, this 1-800 number is here for you and we will post it throughout the evening. But we just wanted to welcome everybody here on panel. And as we dive in, we're going to get these conversations and questions going. You as the panel, I hope that you're able to answer some of these questions. Looks like we have somebody already popping in here and asking and, and saying, welcome, everybody. Thank you, Mama Press A S. Thank you. Whoever that is. Thank you so much for being a part of this evening. Please share this out because this Thank information you. is vital for sure. And I'm going to pop this off the screen here and we are going to go ahead and get started. Well, thank you for coming and being a part of this panel this evening. So um, as we get started, I wanted to, to share a little bit about our incredible speakers here tonight. This information has been posted up on the website for about two months. So this is a quick snapshot of their books and of everything that they are a part of. And once again, these incredible men have decided to join us here this evening to talk about how domestic violence is not a women's issue, but really how men 
men can make the difference. So we appreciate them coming and we're all here together now. So let's jump in. You guys ready for your first question? Okay, awesome, awesome. Here sure. we go. Uh, sure, <laughs> sure, here we go. So Scott, tell, tell me a little bit about how you became involved with domestic violence. You became well, I would say I was exposed to domestic abuse within the family setting when I was growing up. Um, I could say that I watched um, the relationship between my mother and father, uh, which was very contentious. And it made me very curious about roles within a marriage and question authority as to who had the dominant role appropriately versus who was staying on an authoritative role inappropriately. So I began to study on my own about the nature of relationships and how people interact together when they're in an intimate relationship or marriage. And as a young adult, I pursued a career in law enforcement. And of course, within my duties uh, during my time uh, in that career, I encountered a lot of situations of domestic abuse where I would take on the role as an intervener and have to provide guidance to the police involved in the contentious relationship. And I was in that particular career for 20 years. And when I left that finally, um, I went on to pursue my master's degree in adult education and learning. And I became uh, employed with an agency that provided domestic violence education to perpetrators of abuse who were arrested for a criminal charge of domestic violence and referred by the court to a domestic violence behavior intervention program. And the company that I worked for for 10 years provided that program. It was a 26 week program, a six month program. Once a week, we held group sessions for 15 to 20 perpetrators of abuse at a time. And in the course of providing that work, we also engaged their partners if they wanted to pursue a recovery program from domestic abuse. And so I accumulated a lot of experience, not only working with perpetrators in my professional career and then in my teaching career, but also became exposed directly to working with victims in recovery from domestic abuse. Awesome. So Thank after you so much. 10 years of, okay. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, so after 10 years of writing those classes, COVID hit and everything shut down because we couldn't meet in a live session and the world hadn't evolved to StreamYard or to Zoom right at that time. So I took the time to write about what I learned over those 10 years, working with over 1200 clients personally within that organization. Um, and that's where I created this book. If I had known 
the early warning signs, women said they wish they had known before their worst intimate relationship. And in this book, I articulate the cues that perpetrators reveal either through their words or their behavior that indicate dominant patterns of power and control, which ultimately are the key elements of domestic violence. Yes, absolutely. Those, those, those pieces of control and power really are a part of how all of this really kind of spirals down. So Chris, tell me a little bit about your growing up and how domestic violence has impacted yourself. Okay, I'll be as quick as possible here. I know there's a lot to say and not much time to say it. And so um, I, uh, I was raised in a family where my father was an absentee father. And he, um, I, you know, I, for me at the time, I just figured it gave me freedom to do what I wanted and I did it. What I didn't realize is that that was probably creating a lot of uncertainty in my heart I probably had issues of self-esteem issues that were uh, happening. At any rate, uh, because he was an absentee father, my mom had to work, and I was—I ran the streets. Well, during that time, uh, probably was probably 11 years old, uh, and uh, I was uh, actually molested by a uh, neighborhood boy, uh, about three years my senior, about 14 years old. And I had no idea what that was going to do. All I know is when I put her all together, when I got uh, to be about uh, 35 years old, um, I started noticing, noticing some issues in my life that I, I did not like. And um, I, I, during the process, in between there, I uh, heard the call of God to go into the ministry and I became a pastor. And uh, so uh, about 30, when I was 37 or so, uh, I woke up one day and, and even though I'd been, uh, I've been in the ministry for 15 years, I had been to Bible college and to seminary, I had a master's degree, I still woke up one day and realized I was broken and I needed healing. And so I entered into a process. There, there, at the time, there really weren't any books to read about stuff like that um and so i did what i knew to do i i prayed i, I read the bible i uh sought god i i went to a counselor i did a bunch of things like that and through the process of it god brought me through a um uh, uh, well down a pathway to healing so when all this took place. When that happened, actually, in my heart, I knew someday I would write a book about that. And that's what Once Broken is. Uh, Once Broken is my story of um, how, how I came to be a person who needed healing and how God brought that healing to me. And um, uh, it's written in a way that brings people with me down the journey and helps them in the process of them discovering healing for themselves. And, in, and since I've written the book, uh, it's, it's, I've released it. Uh, there have been several thousand people that have gotten the book and uh, uh, others who have said that God has just helped them immensely through the process of it. And I believe strongly that 
the true, the true prevention of domestic abuse of any kind, whether it be to women or to men <laughs> or to children, um, uh, the true prevention is in healing. It's in healing. And uh, so that that's kind of my story. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. The, the concept of really healing is something really powerful because there, it pauses a, it proposes a question for myself when I'm looking at all of these, uh, you know, boys who become men, who get married, all of these things that are happening. You're thinking, okay, what happened as as they were growing up? Like, what is there something from the past? Is there something that they do, you know, were exposed to? Is this just a perpetuating thing going forward and forward? And I know Scott, you in your teaching probably heard many different kinds of stories like this that maybe some of that was in their past. Maybe this was, you know, something to deal with anger, something to deal with. They need they they felt like they had no control, so they wanted to pursue it that way. So there's lots of different things that, that we're kind of looking at. And before I jump into that, I wanted to introduce um Dwayne Hinnett and his exposure with domestic violence is also from another perspective. So Dwayne, would you like to share a little about how you kind of popped into how everything works well with domestic violence? Sure. Um, my story is a little bit different. Um, I came in as a novice of domestic violence. Um, I was raised in a two parent family home. Um, I had two sisters that were married and, and one brother that was married and died and see any domestic violence. Um, so I came in as a very novice. Um, my exposure started when I was working for a, um, a government agency uh, for the city of Durham, which is where I live at, and they had had a domestic violence non uh, domestic violence task force. Um, I had to ask to be the co-chair of that task force, so I started to see cases and stuff like that come on the desk of people requesting help. I probably say what propelled me into working into domestic domestic violence was one of my friends. Um, she experienced domestic violence. It was about three o'clock in the morning. Um, she called me and I could hear her, her boyfriend or the guy that she was um, in a relationship with saying, you know, banging on the door, yelling at her, trying to get her and stuff like that. Um, she was saying that she, she needed help. It was three o'clock. It was three o'clock in the morning. So, you know, I jumped up out of bed and I knew how long it took for me to get to where she was at, which is about an hour uh, from where I lived at. So I heard him got in the car, jumped in the car, was talking to her on the phone, um, still hearing him breaking windows, knocking on doors, trying to get to her and her daughter. And I'm just, you know, running fast, uh, dr driving fast, trying to get to her. Finally, um, she gets on, she gets back on the phone. I told her to, you know, meet me at a certain place and um, um, we meet up. I take her to over to her cousin's house where she spends the night at. That was what propelled me because to, to have someone that you're that close to, which was that was a really, really close friend of mine um, and the, to feel helpless because I was an hour away because I wasn't there with her. Um, I felt helpless and I didn't want I didn't want anybody else to feel that way, especially if someone um, had a daughter or or a sister that was feeling it. So that propelled me into working in it. So I started, you know, doing research and stuff like that as far as domestic violence. Because me working with the task force, I started to see, you know, signs uh, and friends and co-workers and stuff like that in their relationships. So I started to uh, look back on my relationship. Um, my, my story is that I've been married four times. And my four marriages, 
um, all of them were uh, survivors of domestic violence. Oh, and so you see the impact, you know, through, I'm sure they had healing that they had to work through. And I'm sure there were probably times and moments within the marriage that there wasn't any kind of abuse happening, but because what they had experienced, maybe they didn't trust again. There's so many different elements that really complicate the relationship. So thank you for all three of you for sharing this information we've got people saying you know you know yes his name is Dwayne. they're wondering why the things are covered <laughs> so we've got people thanking us for, for providing this platform and being a part of this and so let's get into asking some of the questions and you showing up here tonight if you have a question to ask anyone here scott Dwayne, or chris please ask we'll pop it up there and you know address it to who it is that you want to answer the question. So I'm going to jump over here to Scott. And in your teaching of of these classes where the the gentleman would have to come in and you know part of a court order, did you see change happening or did you see people just kind of well, I have to do this once it's done, I'm going back to old habits. What did you see in your classes? Well, change did happen in some cases. Um, in the court system, in the state where we were operating, we were operating. The uh, we had to provide data to the state on the completion rate for the clients in the program, and the state would measure if the client recidivated, in other words, committed another domestic violence crime over a two-year period after going through our program. And our agency, which was the largest agency at times in the state that I'm in, uh, called the Life Strategies Network, uh, we had a 62% success rate where 62% of our clients would not recidivate within the two years directly following completion of the program. Now that said, that means one third would commit another domestic violence offense within that two year period and be arrested and presented back to court. That's still a pretty but good I think the underlying element there it, it was the, the best in state at the time. The underlying element there was there had to be a motivation within the client to change. We could not dictate change for them or demand change for them. There had to be an underlying reason or motivation that opened them up to consider their behavior and be willing to take on a higher level of accountability and begin to practice the concepts that we would teach. Now, one of the things that we introduced in our program that was unique to our agency, the Life Strategies Network, was we had a value survey. We incorporated into the program. When a client would come into the program, we would have them assess 
their personal values based on an inventory that we had prepared of 50 personal values. And these are values that they would self-identify as wanting to live their life by. And so we took them through the 26th session program and addressed certain behaviors that had been displayed in their intimate relationship. We would challenge them as to whether those behaviors honored and lived up to the personal values and quality that they identified for themselves as aspiring to live their life by. This was a unique quality in our program. In fact, the value survey is included in my second book called Bruised Not Broken, which was published about the same time as the book. And it's interesting because I noticed in your title, Once Broken, that concept seems to carry through the, the topic of domestic abuse, especially for victims who are in recovery, that they see themselves as broken. They've lost their sense of self. They've lost their, their dignity, a majority of their self-esteem. They're trying to climb their way back to a higher level of authentic self. And in my book, Bruise Not Broken, I, I articulate a four-step process over 60 to 90 days to help victims of abuse recover their dignity and self-esteem. And it's built around reclaiming those values that they've lost or lost sight of while they were in that abusive relationship. Wonderful. The concept of reclaiming and building that back, it, it's a tough road. And to kind of back, back up a little bit when you were talking about the percentage of men who finished and who did not repeat um, an incident, I think that is, that's a powerful statement to the program to show that if they had the motivation, the change is possible. And so I, I want people to know out there that there's always hope. There's always hope for change. Uh, as a believer, I know that change is possible. The challenge I think it can be is that sometimes in the relationship, we think, oh, we will be there to be the one to help with the change. I feel really strongly that change is possible, but not as the toxic relationship tries to continue forward. I think the separation is absolutely necessary for both sides to start their healing. And the change is possible, but it's not one person trying to heal another. I like the outside agency coming in and kind of giving the perspective, looking at things and trying to find out the motivation, I think is, is something really powerful. So Chris, I wanted to ask you this question. As a pastor, do you see couples coming in and, uh, you know, say we need help? Or do you see maybe individuals saying I, I suffered from uh, abuse and I'm trying to find healing. What has your been? What has been your experience in, as your role as a preacher? Well, of course, uh, there are some that come in. There are many more, and, and this is probably the the difficult part of uh, domestic uh, violence or abuse, and that is that when um, a person has been um, violated 
when a person has been um, abused in some way, it does something to their self-esteem, and they are they are very protective of those issues. They feel as though people will look down upon them, or that they might be considered mentally uh, incapable or something. So there are a lot of people that just are out there and they don't own up to those things. The smart ones that do, the ones that are humble and say, we need help. They do. They'll come in and we'll talk. And I've talked to a lot of uh, people. Uh, you know, if I talk to guys, oftentimes I talk to guys that have sexual problems. They've got uh, issues. Uh, you know, they're trying to, trying to beat these, these sexual things, the pornography and, and so forth, um, a lot of that stuff happens because they're trying to feel good because they feel so bad about themselves. Um, the problem that I find is that um, too many people are too proud and they don't come in. And it affects their families. It affects their marriages. It affects their businesses because they've got all these issues in their lives that that they don't want to own up to is a you know has happened because of a problem in their lives and you know there, there are uh, people on boards and and uh, running companies and uh, different different things uh, and of course in marriages they just per perpetuate their anger or their uh, low self-esteem or something upon the people that they lead. I had one pastor one time who uh, told me of, of their pastor, his pastor of a very large church, who was abused growing up. And one day it he, he was abusing his, his uh, staff. He had never been healed from that. And he was abusing his staff. And one by one, the staff just left angry and angry. This one angry, that one angry, this one abused, that one abused. And the church just really went through a very difficult time until finally one day, the pastor resigned and he went into counseling and was healed. It took a long time, but there are a lot of lives, families, and organizations that are hurt deeply because of domestic violence, abuse, and they never were healed. Yeah, the, the lack of healing is, is definitely a challenge. And I'm looking at this as a, as a preventive measure. So, so Dwayne, with your group as a task force, do you guys have a preventative measure as a part of that? Um, the the, the task force um, did not have a preventive measure. Um, those, at the time, this was about 11 years ago uh, when I was with the task force. Uh, so it was, it was about 11 years ago. There wasn't a lot of, uh, of, of community involvement as far as perpetrators. Um, that was something that I sought to change um, once I became an advocate. Um, because there weren't a lot of programs, there weren't a lot of programs, and there were a lot of there were men that were remorseful about um, the 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 actions that they that they did. Um, there there wasn't a lot of uh, um, education as far as that. So being that as an advocate now, one of the things that I that I do is I, I try to do 
prevention. I try to focus on more prevention. Um, I try to focus more on um, the relationship with uh, within the, um, the the domestic violence relationship. I try to focus on what causes those toxic relationships, and I try to focus on also reaching out to perpetrators because one thing that we can do is also stop making new abusers and try and other things that we can start rehabbing the ones that were abusers so when it comes to advocacy um i try to cover all bases of it um because when it comes to domestic violence you have it's a, it's like an onion there's different layers with it um we may peel back one and find out there's something else and i can tell you right now domestic violence when i was first doing advocacy um has changed a whole lot um, from what we are right now so would you say it's changed for the better um i i know it's changed for the better um it's just that we had as a community it it's grown so much as far as survivors um and different ways to um figure out what abuse is and what it looks like um and how to um educate the community um one of the things that was telling was the pandemic um that was the most telling thing about it because um we had never had a pandemic before and we had never had where abusers other than abusers being in, in, in prison abusers being with their families for, for long periods of time there were some people that were stuck in the house for for a year or uh, at least six months to a year yeah, very, very telling with with all of those things. And so I think, you know, at the moment of the, the emergency, you know, a lot of a lot of things really popped up. And now as we're two years, you know, afterwards, I think the lessons learned are very, very powerful. So, Scott, um, in, in helping and teaching and looking at the preventative measures, is there something if you had, you know, a wish or a magic wand or what have you that you could implement today to help in the prevention or make having men make the difference what would that look like what would that be well i you know they say that uh, don't need to take a class to make a baby and you don't need to take a class to get married, but you need to take a class to get a driver's license. And I wish there was a standardized education program in all of our middle schools, high schools, and junior colleges at least on how to have healthy relationships. Because so many of the lessons that we teach in our batter intervention program are basic skills that people just need to be aware of in how we interact with each other, how we express ourselves when we're stimulated or when we're triggered or when we're angry. And if we expend our awareness of our own patterns and introduce more appropriate ways of expressing ourselves and getting our needs met with our partners, 
I believe we could reduce the incidence of domestic abuse tremendously. Because the feedback that we have for clients that get through our program is that these things sound so simple in terms of managing their feelings, managing their needs in more appropriate ways that they were never taught. And this leads me back to a point that you started to make, if I may, April, you started to make a few moments ago about are there reasons why perpetrators of abuse are the way that they are? I'll go into it if you want me to, but if not, in the book here, if I had known, I outlined the four dominant theories in why domestic abuse occurs. And I'll leave it yeah, to you ahead. to... Uh, well, there's four theories that I outline in the book. The first is what I call the feminist theory of male privilege. And that's how men in society have a certain status of privilege. Most, most corporations historically have been controlled by men. Men have historically been dominant in relationships, especially marriage. Um, in politics, up until 20 or 30 years ago, politics was an all-male sport. It's only in the last 30 years or so that women have begun to, to integrate into our, our governmental bodies in, in more balancing numbers. So society has been structured historically to support this concept of men being in charge and being in position of authority. The second is what I call the neurochemical influencer. And this is the reaction to chemical messaging in the brain created by fear and supported by anger. And I go into a, a very lengthy discussion about how this neuropathway that's developed in the brain feeds the aggressive posture of a perpetrator of domestic violence. When they get easily triggered or stimulated, either by fear coming from an insecurity or anger, they react in an overbearing, dominant, most often physical manner. And I'm going through these briefly. The third is the repeating the patterns of abuse, someone who's been abused and hasn't resolved those issues of being abused will act in ways to compensate for being victimized by abuser, often by turning to people who are set up to be the victim in the relationship and reliving or recreating the pattern of abuse that they endured themselves at a time in their life. And the fourth is socialization based on the groups that they associate with. And in the book, I have a chart. I don't know if I can get the chart on the camera. It's not going to show through, but it's 
it's five different universes that we circulate within, starting with our own core family of mother image or dominant female in the relationship, father image, dominant male in the marriage, in the family relationship, brothers and sisters, and how we're influenced in that dynamic. And then going out into our, our circle of relatives, grandparents, cousins, going into our social network of friends within the neighborhood, friends we associate with in our schools, and our church groups, what we learn from those relationships about being in relationship with other people. And certainly for males, this is a dominant contributor to how they identify as being male in society. And also for females, they learn lessons from these spheres of influence, how to be female not only in society, but within the context of relationship. So those are the four theories that I highlight in the book to help people understand how we fall into these roles within relationship. And so part of the healing process is to break down the structure of belief that comes from those roles that we adapt to and creating from the inside out a new identity, a self-actualized identity of the role we want to play in our relationship, whether it's a marriage, whether it's an intimate partner relationship, whether it's a family relationship, what are the values that you want to bring into that relationship that have been absent? And so you rebuild that sense, those beliefs and the structure around that sense of who they are and how they want to walk through the world, walk through their life in their personal relationships. It's a very inspiring process. And I've really enjoyed being involved with this now for almost 15 years in teaching this program. Thank you so much, Scott. It's really powerful to to hear those four pieces of it because it really connects with the idea of you know what can happen how can we as men and good fathers within the family unit make this difference to our young sons how can moms do this what are we showing how are we building the relationships together i think that's really important i wanted to put a question up here we have a question from a facebook user that says how do you feel the big church or the big C is doing in building awareness of domestic violence? It's brought up on Sunday morning or in a different way to allow more conversations on the topic. Can you see that, Chris? Do you see that question? I do. Um, I, think, I think the church has, um, the church has not done a great job with that. Um, I, I know this, that in the churches that I have served, and I've served a lot of churches, some big, some small, um, there is a little, a little domestic violence that happens or that has happened that I, that I am aware of. Um, I think uh, when we're talking about domestic violence, I'm talking about physical stuff, but that's the stuff you hear about. <laughs> 
you hear about the domestic, the, 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 the physical violence and the bad things that people do. Um, I think in the church, there's less of that, at least the churches that I've served, there's less of that. And so it's not addressed that much. Um, with me, I believe that there are lesser kinds of um, violent uh, activities that take place in homes that are more common in church. Things like abandonment, things like um, uh, emotional abuse, uh, uh, shaming uh, kids, uh, you know, so that they feel bad about themselves and low self-esteem and so on and so forth. So uh, I think that kind of thing is, is addressed more often than the other. Um, so, uh, so what a church would have to do is they'd have to step out of themselves and address an issue that's outside their own church. Uh, we have tried to do that in different uh, situations. For example, in the church that I'm uh, recently just been, been serving, you know, we went to uh, strip clubs and we tried to help uh, some of those ladies that are obviously there because of issues that have happened in their lives. And we try to pull them out, get them to safe houses because they uh, it's dangerous, not just for uh, not just for um, uh, them because of a pimp, but dangerous maybe because of a guy that they're uh, that they're with. So we've tried to step out of ourselves. Uh, I think more churches need to to do that. They need to step out of themselves and address some of the issues that are out there rather than just focus on the people in their nice little group. Yeah, it's a big it's a big deal to really reach out and go together. And I think I think looking at it as a like in a 30,000 foot view, thinking about a program that Scott has worked with with Chris, you've worked with, you know, different churches and with Dwayne working in different task forces and now as an advocate together if we all kind of linked up there would be strengths within each part that could really make the difference and if i might i like to focus back on that family when i'm looking at for my situation yes we were in domestic violence and abuse and for my you know personal situation we were also dealing with mental health challenges he had not healed from the past and that allowed a lot of challenges to happen and so when the schizophrenia came through in his 20s it had a lot to feed off of and then we were kind of the byproduct and i i talk about abuse in two ways that they are either hunters they know their prey they know who they can control and have power over and camouflage and draw them in or they are like a caged animal where we are there to try to, to you know to reach try to help them but they don't know if you are there to help them or to hurt them and so either way abuse happens whether it's through emotional financial physical combination of goodness so many the, the the challenge really is is i remember thinking if i continue to stay and expose this to my kids what will they learn they will learn that i have to adjust dance around make excuses lie continuously and because he couldn't take the responsibility to medicate properly and to you know take take that piece on and so then he you know physically started to become dangerous so we really had to to separate out my point 
is that the impact of all of this at the time I'm like, okay, now we're safe. This is better. And yes, it was. And at the same time, they still are working through their abandonment challenges. So there's, it's complex and it's not necessarily one answer. So I like the idea of connecting together with church, with programs, with support of the community that together as a family, so to speak, as a societal family, if we look at it, we can see what can happen and best heal. So um, Dwayne, back to your um, information and, and your you know, situation at this, at this time, as an advocate, what is something that you find very supportive and helpful for the people that you work with? I can't hear you, Dwayne. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I said, can you elaborate, elaborate a little bit more on what you're asking me? Sure, sure. So the the concept is now you're you're helping in the, in the advocacy. What part of the advocacy do you feel is really working well for the clients that you support? I I'd probably say um, I probably say therapy. I probably say uh, therapy um, addressing mental illness or mental health um, that's been caused by um, trauma from domestic violence or childhood trauma or any other kind of trauma that actually led to the fact that they were um, in domestic violence um, relationships. Um, I really preach upon, you know, being healed and being completely healed. Um, and that's from um, in your relationship until you're out of your relationship and to continue that on um, because you were in such a bad relationship, one of the worst kind of relationships that you could be in and you have different kinds of traumas that you've experienced. And one of the things I always talk about, uh, like in my book is the ripple effect. Um, you have different things that affect affected you in that relationship that you may also have affect you outside of that relationship. So you may have um, toxic relationships because uh, you were in a toxic relationship. A toxic relationship could have you with more um, toxic people. Because um, one of the things I talk about in my book is that you know, a toxic relationship poisoned all other relationships. So if you were in that relationship and you hadn't healed from it, all your other relationships are going to be bad, whether it's your relationships with your children, whether it's relationships with your friends or relationships with your um, co-workers. So I do preach that part of it and I find a, a good response from it because a lot of people, even though they're out of their domestic violence relationship, they haven't healed from it. They haven't sat down and talked to anybody. They haven't set set down and process what happened within that relationship. So once we get to that healing part, I look at that as as a, as a success and seeing because we're now we're not number one making them more abusers, and number two, we're not getting in more toxic relationships. Yes, agreed. And and dropping those that concept of. I'm no longer, you know, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. Those things and rebuilding this. I'm really looking at the value of life is so, so, so very important. Um, I think as men can make the difference as protectors, as providers, as this concept of it's, it's a role in society that right now is highly confused, right? We've got conflicting information from 
we'll just say from media, we've got conflicting um, information from traditional rules. Oh, it's not this, it's, it's now that. This has now changed or you can't say that. It's in this constant flux and we're trying to find identity. And if we can't do that and connect with who we are and what we can do to love and to serve others, it, it really gets confusing because the nurturing part of women and the protective part of men, that's down deep. That's part of us. And when we're confused and those, you know, shift and change into power and control, it's really hard to think, wait, as this is set up, how could it be healthy? And the exposure of more healthy um, relationships, even in media, would be something that that could be a plus, that could be something positive. Um, looking at different ways to approach relationships within, within schools or within society. Ultimately, the family is where it should start. And when it can't start there, where on the outside can we give those supports so that generationally things can be stopped and interrupted? So uh, we're kind of coming down to the end of, of, our, of our evening tonight. And I really appreciate everyone's support. Can I offer a comment? Yes, please, Scott. I, I just wanted to piggyback on something that Chris started to speak about, and then uh, Dwayne kind of expanded. Um, you were asking about what's working in the advocacy. And I think what happens is society still gets stuck this notion that domestic violence is physical violence. And the church doesn't want to talk about physical violence so much as they want to talk about um, the more coercive type of abuse that takes place. And what, what I found with our clients is that some of the people that come to us for recovery hesitate at the concept of domestic violence until we introduce them to the escalation ladder chart. And I know, April, you commented about in one of the uh, comments you made in the biographies that you posted that in my book is a chart called the escalation ladder. And we show this to the people that come in and we ask them where on this continuum of abuse do you see your relationship? And the abuse, the coercive abuse, can be subtle as the silent treatment or not responding to needs and desires of your partner. It doesn't, domestic violence encompasses all of the abuse from that level to the higher levels of physical violence, which can include lethal violence. And when we introduce this, this chart, it's an eye-opening experience to see the various levels of emotional abuse, physical, of uh, psychological abuse, verbal abuse, that start from very low and spent level in the relationship and over time escalate to the more, more overt forms of abuse. Maybe controlling finances, maybe controlling access 
to family and friends, maybe controlling access to your phone, maybe controlling access to transportation or the internet. But overt ways of, con of controlling their partner and then that continues to escalate to pushing, shoving, grabbing, hair pulling, choking, any number of ways that it manifests in physical abuse. But the spectrum of domestic violence, as is told still in our society, really encompasses all of those insipid forms of control or disregard for your partner in a relationship. And I wanted to bring out that point because it's important for the victims to understand and to recognize when abuse is happening and the continuum that takes place long before it reaches that level of alert physical abuse. Thank you, Scott. I agree with that. And um, Keely Crook, she spoke about those red flags and so many of them were just what you listed. They were the over kinds of things, the, the back comment, the, you know, the slide of just, you know, maybe, maybe the white lie that's kind of changed a little bit. All of these kinds of things with that red flag, which don't have any physical impact, but the emotional and the mental and this whole, maybe I'm going crazy idea. That's such a huge part of these pieces and it can really damage so many things with relationships. And if you look at a relationship, it, the, the ideal is wanting to give your all for the other person and for them to give them all to, to you. And, and in that giving and that service and love of all, you, you want the best. And, and it switches from that selfish desire or, or, you know, or power or control, which is what that leads into. And, and how to show and demonstrate that health is really, really interesting because, you know, based on tradition, what baggages they come with, what did they heal from or not heal from? Yeah, it can be quite a challenge. But if they work together in those early parts, things can really change. Only if both people you know are motivated to to desire that so thank you so much scott for for pointing that out and bringing that forward because those red flags are huge i can drop the link down there below of what right. in my book I put in there in my book i identify the five primary categories of those red flags the very subtle cues they fall into the categories of minimizing denying blaming, shaming, and deflection. If, any, if those five patterns reveal themselves, those are early warning signs of more severe abusive patterns that will be coming over the course of the relationship as it progresses. Yes, Chris. Um, I know you want to finish here. Um, but I, I have some thoughts that I had um, along the lines of the theme that you had for tonight. And, and I, I thought maybe it would be a good idea for me to share them, um, but I'll do it quickly. Um, 
the, the question is, men make the difference. And why do men make the difference? And I, I believe it's because uh, God has really kind of uh, fashioned that in our culture, in our world, in uh, men and women. Uh, there's a scripture in Genesis 3.16 where it says, after the woman sins and the man falls in line with it, God says uh, to the woman, now from this point on, because of the sinfulness that you've moved into, your desire shall be to your husband. Now, um, I, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time proving that scripture. I think that most people in our world will agree uh, that a woman just desires after her husband. That's just the way, way it is. But then in, in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 30, the, it, it describes why this is so. It gives instruction about how men are supposed to be with their wives and how that is going to make marriages work well. Uh, he talks about men sacrificing. And he talks about men conversing, having conversation with their wives. And he talks about men having intimacy, deeper intimacy, having to do with more deeper uh, 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 level of conversation with their wives. And basically what this requires of a man is to have high self-esteem. You've got to feel good about yourself to be that way with your wife and not be threatened by everything she says or does. You've got to, uh, you've got to have your stuff together. You've got to be whole. You've got to be healthy emotionally. You've got to be healed to be able to do that stuff. And the thing is, is that we live in a world where sinful activity happens in families all over. And what ends up happening is the esteem of all of the kids um, that results um, is, is just going uh, downhill. It's, we, have, we have kids with low self-esteem. The problem is men who have low self-esteem because of sin um, and their insecurities, express them in anger, abuse, and violence. Women with low self-esteem because of things that have happened in their upbringing express their self low self-esteem by taking it from the men, which gets them in stronger uh, or, or diff more difficult situations and uh, keeps them staying there until the violence is gone too far. And so men need to be healed. Men need to go to counseling. Uh, men, men ought to be taught before they, before they uh, uh, get married or before they take a relationship with a woman. You need to go to counseling. You need to go to a church. You need to kind of get some of your stuff together so that you can treat that woman the way God intended for you to treat her and um, not the other way. Yeah, it's really powerful to think about, you know, touching back on what Scott had said and that the whole thing bringing it together, right? He, Scott said he wished that there was a, a class. We, we have to have a class to get a driver's license. We have to be certified to do all these things. But relationship-wise, it's kind of like, well, good luck. 
And that, that concept of bringing forward good relationships should foundationally be within the family. And if the family can't offer that, where are their places so that it can? And as part of advocacy, as part of prevention, as part of the society and the community, if we really care about our neighbor and we would desire for that healing to happen, that, that love for one another and that helping through different programs, maybe through classes, maybe through great teachers, maybe through a good church, those things can be offered. So we have to look at where are we here today within the community? What can we impact? Who can we touch? As a teacher, I have a classroom full of 20 students. Who can I touch? Who can I impact? Those 20 students to know how to talk, how to communicate, how to build a relationship with one another in a healthy way because they come from an outside world that, you know, just breaks your heart. And I think, okay, if this is the place for seven hours, what light can I show them? Is there going to make, can it make a possible difference or an impact some way that they can feel, okay, I know this is home, but this feels different and I like this. And so, you know, and so then at least they desire to seek out more, right? I'm not saying one thing is the answer. I think multiple places where you can have access to it, if it's not provided within the family, is awesome. That's why I thank um, Dwayne for coming, because he has that part of the advocacy. Chris, you have a part within the church. Scott, you have a part within a program. And yet together, in different ways, the pieces can be touched because... In, in a perfect world, like I said, family would come and teach this first. If it's not there and if it's fractured, what can we offer within the place that we have? And would we like it to get bigger and more within the entire nation? Yes, but where can we start? We can start at home, we can start in a class, we can start at church, and we can start within a community. And so I really thank you all, because the men here make the, make the difference. Dwayne, was there anything that you would like to say before we close it up? Um, I just want to say thank you guys for being here, uh, for allowing me to be here. Um, thank you guys for being on here with me. Like I said, when I started out, there wasn't a lot of uh, uh, access to other men who had either experienced domestic violence or either that were working in domestic violence. Um, so it's good to see other men that I actually trying to do to to do better to try to change domestic violence. Um, I, today's uh, uh, event was perfect for for what it was. Um, men men makes the difference. Um, I think that as men that we can do more um, to educate uh, children that are in our lives, other children that we have contact with, so we're not making more abusers. So we're not. So we'll we'll also have. Um, education for the 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 victim the survivors of uh, domestic violence um and also too we can do more to show to be an example so that so that survivors know that hey not all men are abusers not all men are going to do me wrong not all men are going to mistreat me in some way there are some men that's out there that are willing to step forward and put their foot forward and say hey i see there's an issue in my community and i want to make the change and you know this is a perfect start to it um we should be the example we should be the change people should see us as the change that we want to see in our community excellent thank you so much everyone i think the points that have been made here tonight have been you know they're fantastic and i hope that it is shared out 
because it is so true, getting more of our community together that we can make the difference with this, building the esteem, allowing the people, the programs, the contact, and in our everyday lives to really help understand what relationships can be to break and stop those traditions and the generational things that happen so that really life can be filled with light, can be filled with that hope. We can unite together. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you, Chris, and thank you, Dwayne, for being a part of this this evening. We will catch everybody soon. We will drop all of the links for the books and for the future events to happen throughout the rest of this week. Please come back for Thursday with Estella Gibson. She's going, Estella Gibson, she's going to be sharing about how financially, when we are getting out of these situations, how we can then move forward from there. So thank you, everybody, and we will talk soon. See you all. Goodbye. Bye -bye.